Uh, welcome to the conversation, Hawaii Talks. I'm Catherine Cruz. Holding the military responsible, that's the bottom line the state and city are standing behind. It has put a united front to hold the Navy accountable for the leaks at its Red Hill fuel facility and for putting our drinking water aquifer at risk. We hear from Governor Josh Green about that and about meeting the housing demands of displaced Maui families. We learn about suicide prevention efforts on Molokai, what two lawmakers are doing to help the community after a recent rash of suicide-related deaths. And to the rescue, we'll share the story of a Maui pilot with a little yellow airplane and a soft spot for animals. And on the long view, about those holiday decorations, they can bring out the best and worst across our community. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This week, the Honolulu Board of Water Supply voted to hike water rates here on Oahu to improve an aging system, but to also deal with costs linked to protecting our aquifer. The vote came on the heels of a $1.2 billion claim filed against the military for past fuel spills at Red Hill. The state and city are resolved to hold the military accountable for the cleanup. The military released a statement saying it is committed to protecting the environment, the water, and the community. Here's what Governor Josh Green had to say when we talked to him earlier this morning about the Water Alliance uh, initiative and the efforts to protect our drinking water. The military, though they're obviously feeling pressure from the unified leadership you know, initiative, they are going to also do what's necessary, we're told. So the current ask is, a, you know, an open process. We recommended a 30 years worth of commitment, which is, you know, very natural when you're talking about the environment. And let me start by saying it's a good thing where we've got to so far, which is emptying Red Hill of 99.5% of the fuel five months early without a spill. That's very good. But of course, the remediation is going to take time and that timeline will go deep into the future. They'll finish off the draining of the sludge and whatnot early in the year, but then comes a lot of the hard work, which is more wells to make sure that the the water table is clean and also cleaning water as it comes out through filtration. So we ask for a lot of commitment, and I'm sure we're going to get it. You are right that we are very grateful, and we count our blessings that nothing happened uh, during the the gravity draining of those tanks, and, you know, everything went as planned. But, you know, there is the concern that, you know, over the many decades, there have been spills, and it has been very difficult for the administration, the Department of Health, and the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, you know, to get information. The reports, even from the military, the third-party reports, did raise those problems in the past. For sure. And, you know, all I can really speak to is what my term as governor has been, and that is that we have put a lot of pressure on all parties to make sure that they are transparent with us with many, many conversations and that the defueling has gone well. So, you know, that's where I'm starting. But because of the damage that's been done over the decades, there's going to be decades going forward that remediation and recovery has to happen. So there'll be healthcare dollars that will be spent on people. I'm sure there will be legal actions that are going to continue. But for my part, I'm trying to make sure that we empty and shut down Red Hill completely 
and that we have a wide open discussion with the military so that as we go forward towards other commitments like the leases, like the use of land all across the state, that people can begin to develop a sense of at least understanding between the military and the state of Hawaii. It'll be a better era, I can assure you of that, and we're getting results now, but people have to, you know, they have to, of course, have a healthy dose of skepticism because of what's gone on in the past. Yes. You know, at yesterday's news conference, it was raised about the cleanup on Koho'olawe. And so you want to make sure that there is accountability and transparency. And, you know, we had that mishap with the plane over there at uh, uh, a Marine Corps base, Hawaii. Uh, and that is still you know, very much up in the air, how we're going to deal with that. Well, this is the world. We don't live in a vacuum. So there are hundreds and thousands of flights that are coming over the islands every day and month and year that are a risk. This is very, very complicated work. And when accidents happen, people have to be accountable for them. But this idea that we live life and it's sanitized and things don't happen is a fallacy. You know, we've committed ourselves and, you know, I'm very much always focused on peace, but we committed ourselves as a nation to having a military presence deep into the Pacific and overseas. That's why we had all this fuel that was being stored. That's you know, a consequence of humankind having these conflicts. And so I, I think it would be foolish for people not to think that we're going to have challenges, you know, over the years. We just have to do our very best to hold people accountable. As we see, mankind leaves a, a deep impression, whether it's the footprint that we have because of travel or millions of people coming into our state or overpopulating certain areas. All of this has an impact. And I think that it's disingenuous for people to think that there's never going to be challenges. We're really facing large challenges with this kind of population and this era. We have to be more reasonable and understanding that that is why we have a Department of Health, why we have a Department of Land and Natural Resources, why we're trying to regulate these things. And when things happen, we try to step right in. Well, you talk about travel and you just returned from Japan. And I know, you know, we have been uh, waiting for the return of the Japanese visitors. I mean, they are coming back, but uh, not like we saw, you know, before the pandemic. Uh, So what can you tell us about your visit there? Well, it was good. Extraordinary how how deeply they feel a concern for our people. Every leader that I talked to, and I had, I think it was 22 meetings over the course of three days at the highest levels, first expressed their heartfelt sadness that we lost loved ones in Maui. They often offered resources and recovery monies, which was amazing. And then the conversation usually turned quickly to increasing travel from Japan to Hawaii. So. The message was loud and clear that I should work towards some form of, of corridor between Japan and Hawaii, which would benefit both of us. Also, everyone is still cognizant that the yen being weak right now is a big barrier. A lot of people kind of told me in one-off stories that they hear reports after someone has returned that they paid $20 equivalent in Japanese dollars and yen for lunch, for, for ramen. And that's like four or five times more expensive than it is when they're at home. And that creates a problem because then they just don't have a lot of extra income. They have not had inflation or increases in wages in Japan for a long time. So a trip to Hawaii is very expensive. I'll try to make it easier for people to travel here. We're talking about pre-clearance from Japan into Hawaii. It's going to take a lot of work because I have to get Homeland Security on board. But if I can do those kind of things, we'll be better off. Meanwhile, Jamie and I will keep going over and 
embracing people and, and showing that Hawaii as a multicultural paradise, if you will, really wants to bring the Japanese travelers back. They do want to come back so badly, but there are some real financial implications of that kind of trip. Well, many of our residents are going over. I know uh, lots of my family and friends have either returned or have trips planned just to take advantage of the yen. But yes, it would be uh, nice to see a little bit more balance there uh, because there are many hotels and tour operators here that cater to the Japanese tourists, and and it's been tough for them. It is. It, It really is. And we love having Japanese tourists here. The challenge is cost, and I spent the better part of a morning uh, last week, right after my return, talking to the leaders of, of most of the hotels. And I will tell you, they all want people to come back, but prices are high, and, and they're aware of that. We're trying very hard to put extra resources into marketing Hawaii, to making sure that people see the value, and especially how welcome the Japanese travelers are. We talked about the Malama campaign, which is really a beautiful campaign, with one exception, and that's that we already trust the Japanese tourists. They've been a very respectful cohort. And so we're not positive that that's been the right message to send. We want to really show that we're welcoming people back. We are going to see good numbers. The marathon's coming up. And I'm told that I think last year we had about 4,200 or 4,300 travelers from Japan. This year it's over 8,000. So it looks like it's doubled. And so I think that the recovery is now ongoing and we're in the thick of it, but we probably won't be able to get all the data for a few months until, you know, the dust settles. And that was Governor Josh Green, who we talked to earlier this morning. We'll hear more from him right after a short break. Support for HPR comes from Hawaii Theater, presenting folk musicians the Kingston Trio, performing songs from their repertoire, including Tom Dooley, 7 p.m. December 7th. Tickets at hawaiitheater.com. Aloha, I'm Bert Lum. If you're interested in science, technology, and Hawaii's innovation economy, Tune in to Bite Marks Cafe on Hawaii Public Radio HPR1 today at 6.30 p.m. Let's get back to the conversation we had earlier this morning with Governor Josh Green. He mentioned that the Japanese numbers for the Honolulu Marathon are double what they were last year, signaling progress in our recovery. You talk about the marathon, and I know we're looking at other ways to boost our economy. There's the Aloha Stadium you know, redevelopment plan. There are discussions about, oh, can we you know, really boost the whole soccer um, industry and, and the tournaments, uh, just because there is great interest here when it comes to soccer. Uh, but what can you tell us about the status of the stadium redevelopment? Well, we're sticking with the calendar that we had before, in spite of a lot of extremely heavy work. Uh, trying to support the Maui recovery, which we are doing. We're also focused on all the same things we were before, whether it's our housing initiatives through the emergency housing proclamation or the stadium. And so the RFPs go out in a couple days in the coming month of December. We expect to have at least three, I'm told, and I expect this to happen, 
people who respond to the RFP, and that will be to build the stadium and housing. I actually went and had meetings in Japan where there are some companies there that have partners here in Hawaii. Some of our prominent developers are partnered with Japanese designers who have built stadiums in Japan, and they're really beautiful. And they also include housing and elderly care and all sorts of interesting things. So I was optimistic when I saw that. Interestingly, their price was the same as ours. We, as you know, have $399.5 million already queued up, and that money will go to whoever wins the bid, provided that they build us a stadium and housing. So it's exciting. You know, I'm going to do all that I can to kind of push the edge of the envelope on timing so we get the stadium built on the sooner end, but it is a big project. So that's going to help the economy, that building, the housing around it, which will take time, is going to help. It's right along the rail, so no one should object. So it's uh, TOD by its very definition. And these are things that are going to be positive in the coming years. But I hope that everyone will rally around us being, I don't want to say aggressive so much as proactive, because we have to have housing so badly. We're seeing that more than ever after the wildfire in Maui and how tight the housing market is. Yes, and and, uh, speaking of Maui, I know uh, Mayor Bisson, you know, announced uh, some initiatives to try and get those short-term rentals turned into long-term rentals because, yeah, our people are having a tough time in the hotels, you know, as the months drag on. Yeah, that was actually me who proposed the, you know, the spending of significant resources in part with FEMA and other entities like the, the folks that have been raising humanitarian money. We've decided that we have to have a price point to convert those short-term rentals to long-term rentals for a period of 18 months. The mayor's proposal, which I like very much, actually revolves around taxes. And I understand they'll likely be having a hearing next Tuesday. That would significantly decrease taxes on people that become long-term rentals and increase taxes on people who remain in the short-term rental market. And that's the right thing to do. If we today were able to convince everybody who is running a short-term rental to put that into the housing pool, we would not have much of a housing crisis any longer in Hawaii. It's important that people recognize that. So we should apply appropriate pressure to move short-term rentals into the long-term market, and that way local people can have access to houses. Whether it's taxes or other incentives, that remains to be seen. But we're going to have to be much firmer about this because I've grown weary of hearing you know, these tragic stories that local people have to move. And if we got some of these you know, short-term rentals into the marketplace, it would help everybody. It would help our workforce, it would help our industry and our economy, and most importantly, it would help young families. So we really have to just stay the course. You know, we're going to be starting the legislative session. I'm sure there are just all these initiatives that are, you know, in play to help boost our supply of housing. But you you had some setbacks, you know, with your um, Office of Housing and, and, and what you were hoping to do. But I think with this Lahaina situation, it just underscores we just can't let up. We've got to create that housing stock. Yeah, the, the housing you know movement that is upon us, we really have to kind of soul search and decide whether we do actually support housing for local people or we don't. Our team supports it. The Sierra Club has not. And they need to get on board. We're talking about building housing along the rail, not ever on conservation land. Huge numbers of people, huge percentages want us to solve this problem for our kids. And, you know, we just need everyone to be supportive of these plans. Otherwise, I'm going to have to keep using emergency proclamations and we're going to keep having litigation. And eventually people will see that 
a good faith attempt to get housing should not be thwarted by a vocal minority. I hope that people see that. I wouldn't describe it as a setback. I would just describe it as our current reality. The political realities in Hawaii have been like this for a long time. It's the same reason we haven't moved forward aggressively enough on water. We need to make sure that we get enough wells built and safely, and we should make the right decisions on water. I'm very appreciative of water planning, but we also have to make sure that we get housing built. So you know, it's, it's up to our team to push hard, and I hope everyone is kind of seeing very clearly what we're trying to do. Most important to me right now, caring for people who went through crisis. But that means we also have to do two things at once, which is care for everyone else who just, you know, is just having their regular life challenges. So you'll see me continue to ask for modest tax cuts for Alice families. You'll see us continue to push for housing. And you'll see a lot more Cal Holly built to help homeless individuals as we go into 2024. If there are other ideas out there, I hope people will, you know, hit me up on Twitter, at GovHawaii or at GovJoshGreenMD, or go to Facebook or whatever, even ping me on my line, you know, send me an email. But we want these kind of solutions going forward, and we were a little slow on them for a couple of decades, so now it's crunch time. All right. Well, Governor, thank you so much for your time today, and uh, have a safe holiday if we don't uh, bump into you, and, uh, and here's to a, a more prosperous 2024 for everybody. Thank you. Happy holidays. And that was Governor Josh Green, who we talked to earlier this morning. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, committed to supporting the people and places affected by the Maui wildfires. Donations accepted at hawaiicommunityfoundation.org slash Maui Strong. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Lisa Smart, author of Words at the Threshold. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about what we say as we're nearing death. Sunday morning at 11. The holidays can be a joyous time, but they can also be very trying for some families. A string of recent suicides on Molokai has strained the community and led to a cry for help. Two Hawaii lawmakers are hoping to help address the issue. State Senators uh, Joy San Buenaventura and Linda Coit are holding a community meeting on suicide prevention and mental health next week. DeCoit was raised on Molokai and resides there with her family. The conversations, Russell Subiano sat down with her in our studio to talk about what more can be done to prevent suicide on the Friendly Isle. Do you feel that the suicides that have happened on Molokai, are they for the same reason that we see suicides in other parts of the state? Or do you think there's something different or lacking on Molokai that may have contributed to recent suicides? Well, well, one is that, you know, we've always looked at, you know, what kind of resources are available? What is the dynamics of the island itself, the economy, the lifestyle? You know, there has to be a balance. You know, I love living on Molokai because the lifestyle that we have, again, our challenges with jobs, our, our challenges with a single airline, 
that doesn't warrant other airlines to want to either come or can drive profits and revenue to come into Molokai. And again, it doesn't have the amount of people to do that. You know, we got to get balance. And I think if you don't have that type of balance and the different avenues for the community to to have the benefits of whether it be that job, the lifestyle. You know, our challenge is that we, we are subjected to high rates of unemployment, welfare, high rates of suicide. It'll occur in a lot of those areas that are less than um, resources that are available, be it suicide prevention, suicide awareness, uh, mental illness, you name it. If you don't have those resources or the educational component or the group that you can talk to that has been through it, it makes it really hard because sometimes we do not want to talk about it publicly. We hold it near and dear to our heart. So having the resources of people that we can talk to or where do we go for help? And then to even having those resources, the individual needs to want to accept the help as well. This listening session that that you have planned for next week, Monday, what kinds of things will be discussed at the listening session? How will it contribute to suicide prevention on Molokai? So the listening session that we have is an array of Department of Health, Office of Wellness, as well as we've invited Kimo Alameda from the Big Island. It's a mixture of what resources are put from the Department of Health, where they can go, what they can do, the hotline that is available, as well as Kimo who Kimo Alameda who also heads the Fentanyl Task Force on the Big Island, because we do know that you know you have also according to the survey that we've done, you know this mental illness, suicide, as well as drugs that are also involved in what we've looked at in regards to suicide. So you can have the presentation coming from that, those types of stuff, as well as then listening to the community and asking the community what is it that they also want. Will it allow us at that point, myself as well as my colleagues, and I'm truly grateful to Senator San Buenaventura from Puna, who you know, is going to be there to help us also legislate if legislation is called for. We wanting to hear from the community what direction they want to take. I don't like to drive government down into any community. I usually want the community to, to uplift it, make the recommendation, what is it they want, and then we go from there and, and, and move forward. Uh, According to a report from the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, some of the reasons why those people have taken that route is because of intimate relationship problems, whether it be like breakup or divorce, serious illness or medical issues, drug addiction. When you look at the various reasons why somebody would take their own life, does it seem like the solution is multi-pronged, just like the reasons are diverse? You know, I, I believe so with what happened in these events. You know, like I said, Molokai is really close-knit community. Again, you know, we have a lot of coconut wireless that goes right. on on Molokai. You know, no pun intended. But the diversity of, you know, what we talk about and these issues that, that you mentioned is, is evident. And, and again, when you look at the economics of an island and you know, the lack of opportunity that is there, it does drive individuals into areas that, you know, whether it be providing for a family, providing for that relationship, or, you know, 
depression has been you know really big lately as well coming out of covid trying to bring businesses that were, were failing not just on Molokai but across the state will literally drive you into the point of financial despair at, at that point and you know just trying to recover and provide for the family you know all these things are contributing factors again at the end of the day what is government doing what are they trying to do to help so I'd like to look at it as you know while we are coming in there as government as partnerships as people that are specializing in that area we're wanting to come in so that we can all put our heads together and what best suits that community because what might work for Molokai will not work for Honolulu or for Kauai or for Maui and you know we really have to be respectful of the individuals that live on these islands. The American Foundation for Suicide Prevention according to their 2022 fact sheet Hawaii ranks 40th in the nation in number of deaths by suicide. Do you think we have a good shot? Is there hope that we can minimize, eliminate suicide deaths in our state? I I think there's always hope, but change got to be made. Cost of living in Hawaii. We always say we got to do better. I I think our challenges has always been we got to do better, but are we doing better? You know, there's so many things thrown at us, environmental changes, climate change, all of these issues that cost us money. So how do we bring cost of living down, you know, is yet to be tackled because financial stability in a family or in a relationship of providing, I think, weighs heavy on people as well. Making sure those resources, again, like I said, are available. You know, being 40 is like still bad. And, you know, as we sit down and like I said, we put our heads together. We have the conversations with those that are willing to have that conversation that's been through it or how we try to work through this because government cannot do everything by themselves, which is why we reach out to those that specialize in areas such as, I mean, this is not a specialty of my own, but as a senator for that area, as well as the entire District 7, and overseeing a lot of the things up at the state of Hawaii, you know, we got to get involved, which is why I spent a lot of time reaching out to many different people in that field of help me, yeah. help me to help me to help government understand what we got to do to help the people not have to go through this again. Us here in Hawaii, our ethnic cultures, our local cultures make us unique. Right, compared to the to the rest of the states. I feel like our culture maybe sometimes hurts these efforts, maybe sometimes helps these efforts. I feel like there's a cultural component that maybe prevents a lot of people from asking for help or looking for help because it's their shame. But I also feel like there's cultural components here when it comes to community and the way that we love each other and we lift each other up that could also help contribute to suicide prevention. How do you feel the culture plays a role in the efforts that you're working on? I think for us, our our culture is huge. Being raised up in a family where grandkids are raised with the grandparents and the parents that have worked through through my years of growing up, it has always been be respectful. If you see somebody that needs help, reach out to them. 
Back in the day, we were always told little kids are seen but not heard from. As we progressed throughout the years, it's like, no, you need to speak up because there are those that will take advantage of you not speaking up as well. But again, always keep the sense of within our cultures, be respectful, be humble. You know, you don't have nothing nice to say, then as we would say, hamal, <laughs> you know, zip it. But again, too, that culture of being raised in a Native Hawaiian family or any ethnic background, you have that sense of making sure that people are cared for. If somebody's hurt, you reach out and you say, can I help you? These are huge. And I think in a time and place that we're at today, that needs to really play a much more important role. You see a lot of fighting, a lot of hatred, a lot of what we see right here in Honolulu that needs to change and change comes from within and if it's one person at a time for us to have the group setting and for us to share our culture and how we were raised we have to be respectful and explain this is why we're doing what we're doing so we can avoid stuff like this where people fall into areas of I shame, I don't want to talk about why I want to do this to myself. And if we can get over that hurdle, I think it'll make it a better place for all of us to have the opportunity to reach out and ask for that help or in this case for us to reach back out into that community. What can we do to help? Can you give us the details on when the Molokai Community Session on Suicide Prevention and Mental Health is happening? So it's happening on Monday, December 4th from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. at the Lanikea Community Center. Senator Linda Coit, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Russ. I appreciate it. Mahalo. And that was Senator State Senator Linda Coit talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. Again, that Molokai Community Session on Suicide Prevention and Mental Health will be next week Monday uh, at the Community Center there on Molokai from 11 to 3. We'll have a link to register on the conversation page of our website later today. Our current rains are testing the runoff measures in Lahaina. That is the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat Managing Editor Kim Gamble is on the line today. Good morning, Kim. Good morning. How are you, Catherine? Good. Staying dry. <laughs> yeah, it sure is wet out there. Yes. And uh, today we've got a story by uh, a new addition to your staff, Christy Wilson, a longtime uh, uh, journalist and editor in this town. That's right. Um, Christy joined our team um, a couple months ago. We're happy to have her. And um, she took on reporting about, you know, the dangers with the rains coming in Maui because of concerns about toxic runoff. Yes. And, you know, we have been actually pretty lucky that we have not had a deluge of rain, uh, you know, while the federal agencies are, you know, moving in there to try and uh, contain that toxic ash. Yeah, that's right. Um, that hasn't happened yet. And, you know, they've taken a lot of preemptive measures. There's really been a multi-pronged effort in Maui to prevent the toxic runoff and take advantage of this sort of reprieve that's been going on. Um, a few of those measures, they've got, first of all, they've got a few groups that are monitoring the nearshore waters, so watching for levels of pollutants. Um, they've also been applying soil tax. Um, to prevent runoff, but also, you know, that's not only because of the rains, but also to prevent um, the dust 
and ash from flying into neighboring properties, but it also serves the purpose of helping prevent runoff. The other thing they've been trying to do is to shore up storm drains. You know, the concern is that the water goes through there and into the ocean. And what they've been doing is they are surrounding the storm drains with something called straw wattles. And I'll just describe that simply. It's basically straw tubes, very long straw tubes, um, which filter the ash and other debris from getting into the storm drains that let the water go through. Yeah, I wasn't familiar uh, with uh, these wattles, so that was new, new to me. Yeah, it's pretty interesting, actually. They're green. <laughs> they huh. look like green socks. So um, it's pretty interesting. And I know there are the, the booms that they've also been placing in, in various areas as well, in the near shore area, um, you know, when that uh, fire first happened. Yes, that's right. That's right. I mean, from the very beginning, they've been worried about this. The other thing that's happening is Maui County is deploying workers to um, inspect and clear the culverts in flood-prone areas. You know, it's not only about Lahaina. It's also in upcountry Um in Kula and those areas, um, they also want to keep the runoff from coming from there. And so they have been trying to keep the culverts clear, and they've got heavy equipment ready to deploy as needed. Um, they're really following National Weather Service guidance on this. And then we've got the researchers at the University of Hawaii at Manoa also um, helping out as well. Yeah, in fact, apparently um, graduate students are prepared if there are heavy rains, they're prepared to wade into the water and take samples um, at key sites like Mala Wharf and Mala Stream. Um, they actually took a sample, took some samples in early October. Um, they say it's too soon to discuss the results from that, but obviously the real test is going to be as the rains come now. Yes, and you know we're forecast for a few more days of rain, so uh, hopefully uh, things hold up and all the preps, you know, in the in the mitigation efforts, they all work. That's right. Um, so far today, there's no damage reported, so that's a good sign that they people are definitely prepared. They're ready to do tests and um, deploy equipment as needed. Okay, we'll keep our fingers crossed. But thanks so much, Kim, and stay dry. Great. Thanks, Catherine. You too. Okay. All right. Well, that was Bye-bye. Managing Editor Kim Gamble talking about Christy Wilson's story uh, on the rains and the potential impact there on Maui. Uh, it, to read Christy Wilson's story, head to civilbeat.org. If you need something from another island, it usually involves shipping by a boat or commercial airline, and many times at a significant cost. Well, one Maui woman with a plane and some cargo space is offering a solution. HPR reporter Catherine Kluwit-Pactel joins us this morning from Molokai to share that story. Good morning. Good morning. And so that bright spot on the horizon has to do with a yellow airplane. Yes, Maui pilot Tessa Coulter has her own plane 
the little yellow plane, as she calls it. It's a Cessna 150. And even though it's tiny, it has carried a lot of very unusual cargo. So, as you mentioned, um, the airlines can only accommodate certain types of cargo. And um, Tessa Coulter is known for flying animals that the airlines can't accommodate. I caught up with her on uh, Molokai as she landed with two baby goats that she was transporting. It's really difficult to get animals between the islands because you can't fly anything exotic on an airline. Cats and dogs only. So even though these guys are totally fine to travel, they would have to do cargo. Cargo typically is like drop them off the night before. They sit in a crate. No food, no water, no nothing. <laughs> and so it's just really, really stressful on the animals. So it's easy just to throw them in the back of the plane. Most of the animals that we do are usually like rescue animals. A lot of times, it's because a shelter is overwhelmed or just doesn't have the resources, especially Maui after the fires. We were trying to get animals out left and right. We flew a cockatoo. The guy was moving after the fires, lost his job, and none of the airlines would fly the cockatoo. So we're like, oh, we'll put him in the back. We flew a one-legged rooster named IHOP. <laughs> yeah, gosh, we've flown cockatoos, parakeets, goats, done tons of cats, dogs. Actually, last trip we went to Opolu, we had about 50 pounds of durian in the back flew 70 teddy bears one time. They were stacked to the brim. Their faces were smashed up against the window. We brought them over here for a light the night kind of thing. Mutty movement, we've done a lot of that. I think uh, one of the first flights we ever did in this plane after I got it was we had about 1,500 tampons in the back. So if anything would have happened, we would have floated. We would have been fine. <laughs> oh, goodness. She takes everything. Yes. So the Mutty movement she's referring to is a Hawaii initiative for equal access to menstrual products. So she helped fly donations to neighbor islands. They they do an annual cookie caper, they call it. So <laughs> she and uh, other local pilots dress up in Santa suits and deliver Christmas good, goodies to airport workers across the state. They've transported full Thanksgiving meals uh, for giveaways on neighbor islands. Uh, they've flown school supplies. They did a school supply drive over the summer uh, before school started and flew uh, 150 or 200 backpacks over to Molokai and Lanai. They also helped with the Maui fire relief efforts. So, um, you know, as we've heard, boats coming over as well as planes flying into Kapalua Airport were among the first to be able to bring supplies to fire victims. And um, Tessa was one of those folks who was flying supplies in um, directly to support those fire victims. And she said that it was amazing to see the aviation community in Hawaii come together for those relief efforts. And here's Coulter talking about how it all got started for her. During the pandemic, it was really difficult to get, you know, animals to places where they needed. Um, so we'd always get calls from Hawaii Animal Rescue Foundation, HARF on Maui, to fly dogs. And we were time building anyway. You know, we're like, oh, we're going to fly anyway. So we'd go fly these dogs to go pick them up from different places. We would start flying other stuff. Like we flew computers over here to Molokai during the pandemic for kids to do virtual learning. 
And then people just started calling us, hey, can you fly this? We've got some cats that need to come from the big island. Or hey, we've got some farm supplies that we can't ship over. Or a cockatoo or goats or a one-legged chicken. Or, you know, we've got this rescue rooster that needs to get to a sanctuary on the big island. Can you fly it? So that's what we decided is we want to turn this into a full-blown nonprofit to be able to do this more and get more people to participate. The whole idea that when you're flying, you have so many hours to build to either get your time for a rating or you know get enough time to go to the airlines or qualify for a job and so might as well use that time boys got an empty back seat so throw some goats in there throw you know farm supplies durian whatever yeah good for her you know i mean there's a need you fill it exactly so they're talking about uh starting developing a nonprofit called the little yellow plane project again to support the work that they're already doing uh she she flies along with other uh, local pilots uh, who sometimes jump co-pilot with her or she, for larger volunteer efforts, um, gets pilots to fly with their own planes uh, to help her out. And she's working on becoming a certified flight instructor. She works um, full time and she, in AI in artificial intelligence marketing. So she's actually using her knowledge of AI to help develop a flight training ground school program that she says she wants to change the way that pilots, upcoming pilots in Hawaii learn and navigate um, the island's challenging flight conditions as they learn. So she's got a lot coming up in addition to flying all sorts of unusual cargo. Yeah, interesting. Well, it's a a fascinating story. Uh, Thank you for sharing it with us. Yeah, it was a fun one to catch up with her. Alrighty, love those goats. All right, well, thanks so much, Catherine. Thank you. That was HPR reporter Catherine Kwit-Pactel talking about a Molokai nonprofit in development, Little Yellow Plane Project. Read more of her stories on hawaiipublicradio.org. is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. And on today's Manu Minute, we have the song of the Nehoa Finch, which are endemic to Nehoa Island in the northwestern Hawaiian Islands, and they are found nowhere else in the world. These recordings are courtesy of Zeno Kanto. Here's University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart. The Nihoa finch is a ground-nesting Hawaiian honeycreeper that's found only on tiny Nihoa Island in the northwestern Hawaiian Islands and nowhere else in the world. They're a bit smaller than their close relatives, the Laysan finch, but otherwise look similar, with the males mostly bright yellow and the females duller with dark brown streaks on their head, breast, and back. Both sexes have big, sturdy, seed-eater bills that they use to eat a huge variety of foods, including fruits, seeds, leaves, flowers, insects, and even bird eggs and carrion. If you're lucky enough to ever visit Nihoa Island, you can't miss their lively, canary-like song. Nihoa finch were recently given the Hawaiian name Palihoa, as their original name seems to have been lost. While their population seems relatively stable at about 3,000 birds, 
They're listed as an endangered species because they're vulnerable to catastrophic events, such as hurricanes. To lower the risk of losing them this way, they were introduced decades ago to Turn Island, further to the northwest, but that population went extinct by the early 1980s. Fossil evidence shows they were once also found on other Hawaiian islands, including Molokai and Maui, but tiny Nihoa is the only place they've managed to hang on, likely due to the lack of predators and mosquito-borne disease. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from the Hawaii Audubon Society. Since 1939, fostering community values that help to protect Hawaii's native wildlife through educational programs and scientific research. More at hiaudubon.org. This weekend, the city powers up its annual Honolulu City Lights celebration. <laughs> Honolulu Holly and its grounds are all decked out. They're just putting on the finishing touches. But over its nearly 40-year existence, there have been relatively few problems over First Amendment issues. Here to talk about holiday decorations and such is our contributing editor, Neil Milner, with our segment that we call The Long View. Good morning. Good morning. So, tis the season. <laughs> yes, it is. My reindeer is parked outside, and I'm okay. paying a quarter for 10 minutes. All right. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, you know, we... we haven't had too many really, you know, issues over this uh, during the holidays. But on the mainland, oh my gosh! Well, there is, and and as you suggested, this used to not be much of a legal issue for a variety of reasons. It's not just that people changed. Courts for a long time didn't see the Bill of Rights as really applying to a lot of these situations. And when I was a kid, which is a long time ago, obviously, there were we had Christmas pageants in the public school. There was no wall of, I mean, you didn't pray, but there was no wall of separation. And the way that we dealt with singing Christmas carols, being Jewish, is that we would sing the Christmas carols and then mouth any reference to Jesus or to Mary. So um, that, that uh, and, and that's important to understand because we're going to do two things very quickly today. One, talk about what the formal law says about this, how courts deal with this. And the second one is what I call the second everyday First Amendment, which is how do people generally deal with these kinds of disturbances and conflicts about Christmas um, in the absence or when you don't actually go to court to do it. So the first thing to say is that there is a rule that it best explains the kind of complexity of courts trying to figure out what you can put in uh, uh, government-sponsored, like City Lights, what you can put in that isn't a violation of the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment, which says, in effect, the state can't favor one religion over the other. You can't have anything in it. So this is a long and complicated fight that's full of ambiguities, and maybe the best way to remember where you stand right now is what's affectionately referred to as the reindeer rule. The reindeer rule, which the courts don't call this, but it goes something like this. If all you're putting into a a, a city-sponsored, a government-sponsored display is all about religion, a particular religion, then you're constitutionally suspect. 
one of the ways to avoid that is to put in lots of other stuff, like reindeer. Reindeer are not known for any particular religion. Rudolph, you don't know. <laughs> so, so that's what. So that if you look at like it's at City Lights, what it does is celebrates. At least this is the theory. It celebrates the diversity of cultures. It celebrates all kinds of other things. And even in that kind of context, it's possible to have, a, say, a nativity scene, which is a, a, a battleground for lots of things, the crash, Because if the crash is in the context of reindeer and all the other kinds of things that are less secular, it's more likely to be, it's more likely to be accepted. When, uh, when the city of Pittsburgh many years ago took a crash, put it in, a, in all by itself in a very auspicious place in, uh, I think, City Hall, the court said, uh-uh can't do that because it's too explicitly about one religion. There's all kinds of fights about that basic issue about how much the, the how much religion should be kept out. But the simple thing to understand is that it has to have a secular purpose um, even though uh, Christmas is not strictly secular. The courts have said it's secular enough. Keep it secular by putting in a lot of other things. Yeah, I know in some of the articles you sent over I know there's one uh, story about a Satan tree or something. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, there are. Now, remember, just as an aside here, the the rules are different if it's public space. If the if the state's not sponsoring, if 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 uh, city lights were, if if we had a certain public space like a park, I guess that's open for all kinds of people to express themselves, you can't keep religion out of them. That is, that's partly a First Amendment right, the freedom of speech right. We're talking about sponsored things. So let's talk about the way that most conflicts in, in, the United, in the world are handled, which is really outside of the court, in which I call the everyday First Amendment. How do people deal with conflicts over Christmas that don't get into the court? So for, you'll see that I have links on this. The, the Pew Foundation has got a very good explanation of the legal things. I've put on a, a, a piece that talks to people who live in condos about how you deal with uh, those kinds of, of, of situations. And the condo situation is very different because if you live in a condo, um, the uh, um, a homeowners association. Uh, I'm, a, I'm I'm a survivor. I've lived in one for close to 50 years. Um, th- they have, as anyone who lives in there knows, has a, their own set of rules which can determine a lot of other things. Um, they can determine when you can put up decorations, probably if you can put them up at all. And so, what you f- r- look at fine law is, if that's the case, what is it you can do if you don't like what's going on? Well, you you can go to your board. You can go to other things. Um, And they also recommend, we'll get back to this in a minute, talk to your neighbor. If you don't like something that your neighbor is doing about Christmas, if it's, and if it's not necessarily violating noise rules or light rules, talk to your neighbor. Easier said than done, but that's the other thing. So, um, what another thing on the site is what I call uh, a neighbor-neighbor conflict from hell over Christmas, and you can take a look at this. Um, it's 
it's way too biased in the direction of good and evil, I think. You'd really want to know much more about it. But it's about a, it's about a uh, area near Pittsburgh where somebody, for all kinds of reasons, over time, he doesn't even like to talk about it, has totally harassed his neighbors with nasty personal uh, anti-Christmas messages and so on. And you see what happens when things get out of hand. But... I guess the point about Christmas decorations in an informal way is that a lot of these things about in condos or about what you think of your neighbor's decorations are the kinds of things that we deal with day to day that have a lot more to do with our feelings, have a lot more to do with our relationships, have a lot more to do with how much we want to want to push things uh, rather than let it slide, which is fairly human um, and not. So let me let me end with a little anecdote about myself. For years, we've lived in a in a in a condo, actually a well-run condo, that has a, used to put a cross up on the top of the highest uh, the, the rec center, and uh, we're you know I'm Jewish, cross is not an important religious symbol, and we. I mean, we didn't care. We we left it there. We cared in the sense we'd rather have it not there. We didn't think it was worth that kind of issue. It drives my kids, uh, it drove my kids crazy over the years that it shouldn't be there, it shouldn't be down. And, and I've had this discussion well into adulthood with them. And our argument was, we have a whole kinds of set of complex relationships. It's not that important to us. We let it slide. They didn't. They don't believe it that way. What finally happened is that the board decided to take it down. Mm. That's a much more typical kind of way of doing it than ending up in the in the court. Um, but it's a it's a fascinating issue, and it tells you a lot, not just about the legal process. Yeah. Well, let's all pray for peace. <laughs> Calm down. <laughs> thank you and so much. Stay out of that neighborhood in Pittsburgh. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It sounds like a. Uh, yeah. Mm, Scrooge. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what they say. That's exaggerated. But, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Neil. We've been talking to our contributing editor, Neil Milner. You can look for links to stories about this issue on our website later today. We have to go now, but up tomorrow, we tip our hat to Shaka Santa and Tutu Mele. Got a City Lights memory from the last 39 years to share? Record something on our talkback line and share the spirit of the holiday season. The line is 808-792-8217 or email talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Look for the conversation wherever you find your podcast. Our show is also archived on our website as well. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. 